Shalom and welcome again to Secrets of Meaning, the podcast and TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address. We welcome you to another edition, um, which promises to be a very, very exciting conversation with a colleague of ours, Rabbi Michael Zedek. Um, Secrets of Meaning is the podcast and TV arm of our work at Jewish Sacred Aging. If you'd like to contact me with ideas or suggestions, Rabbi Address at JewishSacredAging.com. And we appreciate it if you visit the Jewish Sacred Aging Facebook page. So it is with a great deal of pleasure that we welcome to our um, Seekers of Meaning podcast today, Rabbi Michael Zedek, uh, Rabbi Emeritus at B'nai Yehuda Congregation in Kansas City, Missouri, and currently uh, the rabbi in residence, I guess if that's the, uh, the right way to say it, St. Paul's School of Theology in greater Kansas City, um, whatever. Anyway. Um, it's going to get better, even even if it is greater. No, no, no. It, as we speak, it's probably getting uh, whatever. Uh, we're here to talk about Michael's new book, uh, Taking Miracles Seriously, subtitled A Journey to Everyday Spirituality, available through the usual uh, suspects, Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, and the publisher, Michael, what's what, the name of the publisher? Is? House Books, which is Toronto-based. And I like to think that the publisher wanted to sort of see if he or they could get a foothold in the American, the North, the United States market. I almost did a political foothold. Right, you have, to be, you have to be careful with them. You can get in a lot of trouble. Anyway, uh, it's nice to see you. It's nice to see you. Great Welcome. Great to see you and great to be seen. And thank you for doing this. No, thank you for agreeing to do this. Oh, so, thank you um, for me for thank you. And thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, we can do an hour of thank yous, rabbinic thank yous, which sometimes, you know, in conclusion, <laughs> that's a 20-minute warning. Um, what's a miracle? Ooh. Well, I, I suppose I could finesse with, with saying what isn't a miracle, but one of the conceits of the book is that in the Hebrew Bible, every time what you or I would think of as a miracle, by which we always bring the baggage of a supernatural intervention into the everyday routine of experience, that kind of miracle never produces the impact that one would expect if that's what the text means by miracle. Because every time, well, easy example, sea splits, they walk through on dry ground, two miracles at least, because there should be mud. And if I were an Egyptian chariot driver, no way I'm going to drive in there. But the text says they do, and you know the rest. And over and over again, uh, my assessment is that that notion of miracles, if it means something, it means watch out because we too miss the miracle of the everyday, the remarkable of the commonplace. Or to put it in a Hebrew context, there are words in the Hebrew Bible that are translated miracle, the three most common, nes, ot, and pele. But they don't mean supernatural intervention. A nace means a sign or a symbol. An ot is literally the Hebrew word for a letter of the alphabet, otiot, symbol, sign. And a pella is a wow, a wonder. What isn't a wow or a wonder? Or as I love to imagine the book tries to help people recognize, taken seriously, what is in a miracle? Or to, to remember, uh, or to remember as his name went right out of my head, the principal editor of Gates of Prayer, Stern, uh, Mal not Malcolm Stern. Uh, um, we're, Rabbi we're, Stern. we're forgetting, but no, uh, no, no, yeah, yeah, it was Stern. Yeah, yeah. Uh, his past years vanish, 
And I absolutely think that's true. We, we walk sightless among miracles. I know I have that blind spot and I make the assumption that others have similar challenge. Can we be more alert to the miracle in the everyday, the commonplace? Or as colleagues have suggested more than once, burning bushes are scattered randomly through every day. And what do we do? We ignore them. Well, if we were to take the ordinary for granted less, our lives would be more filled with life. That's my conviction. So is that why, you know, in the morning service, there's that section before the Borchu, the Nisim B'chol Yom, right? The uh, miracles of everyday existence. The is signs and wonders of every day. It, so is it, it also are, Heschel's, is, Michael, is it also Heschel's radical amazement? I, I'd love to think it is true. And Heschel is cited more than once in the book, because right. who, who could not? Uh, but I, I, in the morning prayers, when I'm like, I know in, did you have Petakowski for liturgy? Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> yeah. well, one of the earliest prayers we used to euphemistically call the plumber's prayer, right? Right, Praise right. Praise the eternal our God, ruler of the universe, who has fashioned us in wondrous manner, with openings and closings. And if right. that which were to be open were to be closed, and if that which were to be closed were to be open, could not stand before you. But the chatima, the seal, is the real point. Praise the eternal our God, mafli la aso. Mafli is the verb form of Pele, who wows to do. But we only pay attention to our urination and defecation when we're having trouble with them. But we are awesomely made. and that's No, 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 no. I, I teach that all the time as late as last week and, and <laughs> to a group of people at a CCRC. And when we, when they discovered it's the bathroom prayer mm -hmm. and they, you know, they stop, you know, giggling. I said, well, listen, just take this very literally because if you don't, or if you have, <laughs> <laughs> and they all of a sudden, you know, they all shook their heads because yeah, they knew exactly what was, we were, we, we were talking about. Right. You, you start, um, you reference Wilder's Our Town. Mm -hmm. How come? How come? Why is that so important to you? Well, I suspect the panoply of reasons, including that my first girlfriend played Emily in Our Town. Uh, right. And so it's always been imprinted as a very important moment in I'm, my I'm sure she's adult, I hope someday to be, right? Uh, right? But more substantially, the stage manager in the play is clearly a God figure. And Emily, as those who recall, has, she's died very young and she's allowed an opportunity to return for one day. She chooses her 12th birthday and it's devastating because no one is paying attention to the regular routine of experience with a certain awareness of how wondrous the gift of life. And she turns to the stage manager and implores him, take me back up the hill, back to my grave. And then she says, does anyone ever fully realize life while they have it? And the first response of the stage manager is no. But then further, well, saints and poets, they do some. And who wouldn't want to, if, but who has the time to be a saint or a poet? And so the book is an effort to say you don't have to be that in order to get more of the amazing wonder of the brief moment before eternity that we call life. One of the nice things uh, uh, sprinkled throughout the book are little references to times and moments of our earlier life, uh, classic TV. I mean, you uh -huh. any book that channels um, Wilbur the Talking Horse, um, you know, it has to have. Richard, it's one of the few impressions I really do well. Wilbur. <laughs> you also do the Peggy Lee. Is that all there is? Yeah. And 
you you have this um, paragraph around right after you reference Peggy Lee's song about our tradition um, uh, for as long as the breath is in us to do something about this um, bringing people together. Then you write, quote, we are meant to close at least some of the distances between the world as it is and the world as it should be, even if that only means just a little more kindness, justice, justice and mercy, unquote. And this sense of brokenness the book, does it speak, Michael, to the brokenness of people right now, the brokenness of the human spirit that we're existing? And could you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, as we're talking, there's an awful lot of evidence of the brokenness of our world all around us. And the book, I think, tries to focus a bit more on the brokenness in us. And there's a whole section of what gets in the way of our being open to the holiness all around us and the sacred dimension in us. Uh, but, uh, you know, Groucho Marx's line, I wouldn't want to be a member of a club that would have me as a member. Uh, but I take refuge in a certain conviction slash cliche that animates the person I hope to be someday. I am much more than I ever thought I would be, much less than I should be, and both statements are true. The paradox is when both statements are true, you get more of the better or less of the worse. Or as I do cite, here's another voice from the past, uh, the humanist psychologist uh, at oh God, the University of Wisconsin, and there again, another senior moment, I can't think of his name right now. It is a curious paradox that when we accept ourselves as we are, then we can change. The hard part is to accept ourselves as we are, because that's the key to growth. That's the key to being able to make a greater difference in the world than we already do. And I would say make a more positive difference in the world because we always make a difference. The only question is in what direction is that going or growing? Um, so so you, you've, you've walked the walk of a congregational rabbi for a long time. You've, yeah. you've experienced a lot of aspects of this. You've written about this now. You're searching for the miracles. Are people afraid? Are, are people, do they have an innate fear? of really looking for their own authentic self and that miracle that ex that is life? Mm. Well, that's a wonderful and challenging question, darn it. Uh, I was meant to get the tongue close to the cheek. No, no, no. Uh, what, what immediately leaped to mind is a Jackie Mason line uh, of when, when going to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist says, the search for the true self begins now. And Mason's line, well, what if when we find him, I don't like him? Um, I, it's hard to grow. It's hard to admit that we are unfinished products. It is easier to be satisfied than to be in the disturbing notion of I still have miles to go before I sleep. Uh, and it seems to me that we try to quiet that stimulus because it's dangerous to be alienated from the self. You know, uh, I mentioned Cain in, in, in this book, and, you know, Cain is condemned to be a ceaseless wanderer in verse 12, and in verse 16, he settles down. So clearly it's an existential state, not a 
wandering from place to place. He settles in the land of Nod, which is the land of restlessness. Um, there is a turmoil in us. I don't think it is possible to quiet that unless we accept it, uh, as opposed to trying to shut it down. I, I, am I responding in some way to your question? Yeah, yeah. But uh, so, just picking up on what you just said about the 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 shutting down. You, you're teaching uh, doctor of ministry students, ministerial students. Um, how do they approach this idea of the miraculous from that spiritual point of view? And it's an interfaith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what uh, what are you finding with 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 these students? Because it's fascinating to me in dealing with students yeah. in some well, of the, the stuff. First, I the first thing that happens uh, often is since Jewish tradition, as you and I both know well, has an ongoing thousands of year long conversation with the text. Uh, Christian ministerial students get really excited to have that door opened because it's often very challenging, especially for a liberal Christian, because it's you in the text. Darn it. How do I make this have relevance today? And, and our tradition has got an ongoing notion of, first of all, that the text is multivalent. It has um, lots of levels of meaning and conviction and option and possibility. Text doesn't change, but we do and how we see it in one iteration or another. Uh, and they love the Devar Acher approach, another interpretation, another interpretation, not my right and your wrong one, but another one. Uh, and so that's the first piece. Second piece is given that miracles, at least as they're literally presented in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament, if one takes them literally, then you've got a problem. Maybe God operated in those days in ways God doesn't anymore. What's the relevance? So to, to offer a, a vocabulary that says, wait a second, there's some new ways of looking at this in the Pardes acronym. For those who are unfamiliar, Pardes is the Hebrew word for orchard. It's also how we get the English word paradise. <clears throat> and it stands for the minimally four levels in which every Jewish text has a layer of meaning. The literal, the hint or clue, the ethical meaning and the secret meaning. But so they love it, I think. Uh, or now I'm going to elaborate ever so slightly. One of the classes I teach here is Genesis as a rabbi sees it. Richard, the single most remarkable classroom I ever had, a classroom experience I ever had was doing that class. And I think the reason was all of the characters in Genesis are examples. They ain't role models. They're examples of brokenness. And every one of us has that brokenness. And somehow I think I was able to help create an environment in which the brokenness of the characters and the brokenness of each one of us in the class came to a place where we could have an awesome, sensitive experience that was unforgettable. And I hope it's unforgettable in the sense that it carries on after we leave the classroom. As a colleague of mine once said, after the service, then the real worship begins. The worship's out there in the street. Right. It's interesting about the brokenness, which is really why I wanted to, one of the reasons why I wanted to pose this, mm-hmm. um, because it does tie in with the idea of Tsimsum and, and the broken mm-hmm. vessels of creation and the idea of putting those vessels back together. And of course, the idea of, as you allude to in that paragraph that I just saw, uh, cited, that one of our jobs is to help 
the brokenness of individuals back together. The challenge, of course, is, which is probably another podcast, um, the bro- when we ourselves are broken, you know, when, when, co- when clergy itself are broken, uh, and, and, but you, 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 you alluded to this, you know, the, 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 the God concepts and you do have, um, it's on page 61 of the book, uh, if I looking at it correctly about you, your statement about, you know, there's all kinds of different beliefs in God. I don't believe in certain types of God, right. but I do believe in other. Talk to me about this sort of like, um, this approach to, I always reference when I teach this Exodus three about the Jewish tradition saying that we are open to multi definitions of how we interpret and we interpret at different ages. Mm-hmm. So, um, talk to me a little bit about this, uh, what I called in my notes, selective atheism. <laughs> Ooh, why don't you get us both in trouble here? Uh, I, I, I probably make a, a statement that I'm going to think is bold in the book. Uh, there are certain God concepts about which I am an atheist, but atheism takes a great deal more faith than I have. The absolute confidence that there's nothing to which the word God refers is an extraordinary leap of faith. Because I take my experience seriously, there are times when I'm unsure what it means to say God is. But because I take my experience seriously, I am more and more convinced that there are more moments when I know that means that meaning abides at the heart of existence, experience, etc., and that's what I think is the minimal notion of what we mean when we say God. I'm also reminded, given that this is the 100th anniversary of Martin Buber's I and Thou, uh, he supposedly once said, if we would just stop using that word God for 100 years, when we opened our mouths, we would start making some sense. But as you know, God is just a generic term. Jewish tradition has multiple names for what we call God. Right. And not the least of the reason, because they were talking about our experience. Because I'm telling you more about my experience than I'm talking to you about telling you about God, and and you know it's all very it's as you're alluding to it's all for personal and changes. Mm-hmm. And speaking of personal and change, you have this lovely little section in the book that I I I, I made that I, oh, I had. There's only about. one section that's lovely. I'm done no, with this no. podcast. Ah, <laughs> uh, Rabbi Literal. Yeah, Talk to me about Dad's Four Lessons. Oh, thank you. Because it's it's really a lovely, it is a lovely section amongst many lovely sections <laughs> in the book. But, but it also speaks to, speaking of Genesis, the door of our door, generation to generation. And as we get older, the realization that we are in many ways, we carry so much of our parents with us. Oh, for sure. Uh, that we a lot of times try to, want to rebel against. But it's always it's always there. Yeah. What well, are dad's four lessons? Yeah. So for me, the singularly most important moments that shape the adult I hope to become someday are based on the notion that my father died when I was eighteen, and it took him two and a half years to die of cancer. Uh, and rather than my drawing the obvious lesson that life sucks, it can't be trusted. What's the point of loving someone? All you're going to do is lose them. My father set out to teach me what I consider the most important lessons I've learned. There are four of them, as you point out. Lesson number one, life is a very precious and very fragile gift. Self-evident, needs no elaboration. Lesson number two, were I to die today, I want more. 
I am so intoxicated with the gift of life, or as I quote Edna St. Vincent Olay, oh life, I cannot hold you close enough. I mean, I, I want more. Lesson number three, and I mean this with equal seriousness. Were I to die today, it would be enough to say the gift of life was worth it. I want more, but if this is all I get, to use the Hebrew, dayenim. Thank you. Enough. Lesson number four wasn't the one my father taught. It's the one that came from him, from this experience. I'd rather have my father than have learned any of that. I can't have that, but I can have what his life still means as it informs the person I am and wish to be. Uh, because we are all here for the briefest moment before eternity. What does it mean? What can we do? How can we connect? And what is our message? And do we burn with it? Um, this is a United Methodist Seminary. And John Wesley, who's understood to be the spiritual founder of United Methodism, supposedly said, the preacher must be on fire, for then people will come to see him burn. I would think Judaism has a slightly different notion. The congregation can have a spontaneous combustion that warms more than just the congregation. Uh, yes, hopefully. But that's mm. another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Soon to be repeated in a summer cycle of repeating. No, no, but look, I mean, the, the whole nature of, of, of worship yeah. and how it's changed. I was just talking to somebody literally yesterday about how in our rabbinate, um, the number of revolutions that have taken place just mm. within the American Jewish community it, it, that we have lived through and literally been part of those four or five rev major revolutions. So, and, and just to remind people, we were talking with Rabbi Michael Zedek, um, Rabbi Emeritus at B'nai Yehuda Congregation in Kansas City, Missouri, and the rabbi in residence at St. Paul's School of Theology in Greater Kansas City about his new book, Taking Miracles Seriously, subtitled A Journey to Everyday Spirituality. Michael, what's the power of prayer? Yeah, uh, to, to take a step back and then try to respond. Uh, the book has three parts. The, the first section is all about how people miss the miracles. Second part is how to take, speak about God seriously, at least how I think one can do that. And the third part is how prayer and poetry can inform uh, and a capacity for us to be more aware of the preciousness of the commonplace, the everyday. So for me, prayer is not urging or imploring the universe to go off course. It's a way I am aware of uh, the presence of the wonder in me and all around me. It's a way to be alert to that there is an a capacity to step back and be introspective and be rejoicing and be challenged by what is real and what is not yet all it's supposed to be. Um, dear God, please let me get an A in mathematics. Will not work unless you studied in the Jewish prayer would be, dear God, please let us get an A in mathematics. Or a more precise example, as you know very well, Richard, the prayer with which one begins a meal, if it includes bread, is the all-inclusive praise are you, etc who caused the earth to bring forth bread. Well, first of all, the earth doesn't bring forth bread. It brings forth the raw materials. So it already indicates we're junior partners with God in making a better world. And second, why not just run up to the feeding trough and push it all in just the way an animal would do? And rather, it's a moment for me to pause and be aware that I'm about to participate in something wondrous, to use my term, a miracle. 
I'm going to derive from this food an aesthetic experience, hopefully, that's positive. My body is going to get the fuel to sustain it. And then, wonder of wonders, it's going to be able to get rid of that which it can no longer use. God doesn't need my prayer for me to eat my food, but I need that moment to pause and be aware. It's another burning bush moment. And if we could take less of them for granted, our lives would be more filled with life. That, for me, is the highest point of prayer. Uh, it's for me, not for God. Mm -hmm. Or I think I cite a Heschelism in there, uh, uh, to wit, uh, it's not that I need to feel like praying, it's I need to pray in order to feel. And there is this back, the, the back end of the book, the appendix, which, which, you know, you mentioned the power of poetry and, and, um, prayer. It's interesting to see so, especially in light of the war, um, people writing prayers and poems specifically dealing with this. You cite this wonderful midrash in the middle of the book about, um, the relationship of God to us and us to to God. It's you mentioned it's based upon a passage in Isaiah, and you write, quote, quoting the Midrash, uh, but if you are not my witnesses, I am not as though it were possible, God. So that seems to speak to that theology of yours about um we for a God to we have to exist, right? Mm -hmm. Talk to me about that Midrash. Yeah. Well the most important word in that midrash, as you and I remember from our days in studying at, at seminary, is kivyachol, as though it were possible. Meaning, person can't say this, but we say it nonetheless. I mean, because God is God, whether you or I are or are not, if if you take a God concept seriously. But what I think it means is, first of all, the Hebrew Bible doesn't know the so-called Jerry Falwell dreaded devil of secular humanism. There's no such thing. It's sacred humanism. What we do to each other brings godness into the world or drives godness out of the world. That's our job for as long as we are custodians of the breath of life. Or as you know, if you go to a Jewish cemetery and there's Hebrew on the stones, there will be two comments that come to mind. One is niftar, which is usually translated as departed and then the date of death. But it literally means to be discharged from service. While we're here, report for duty. And then on the bottom, an abbreviation that is Tehi Nishmata or Nishmata Surah Surah Chaim. And just about every rabbi in the world will translate that, may his or her soul be bound up in the bond of eternal life. But there's no word in there for eternal life. It means may his or her soul be bound up in the nexus, the network, the web of our lives. That's our job. For as long as we're here, to be bound up in the web of, I hope, making a positive difference in lives. So, what that mid, why that midrash is so compelling to me is we can say there's a God, but our lives give testimony to what we really worship. Or in that same prayer book that Rabbi Stern edited, there was a comment attributed to Ralph Waldo Emerson. No, by the way, no one can find where he said it, but it's attributed to him. Right. The right. gods we worship write their names upon our faces. And be sure of it, we will worship something. We may think that our worship is carried out in secret, but it behooves us to be careful what we are worshiping. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. We are becoming, right? Yeah. It's not God or no God. It's what is your ultimate value? Right. The best prayer in the gates of prayer, page 240, top paragraph. 
No, no, I teach it all the time. It's it's literally the best prayer in that prayer because it's one hundred percent true. There's, you, there's no contradicting it. Every no, one of us has an ultimate value, and you become what you worship. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it it's just a fascinating prayer. Yeah, the 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 and while we're on prayer, the that eternal life question, Michael, mm. and the power of Kaddish, and really the power of memory. Um, how miraculous is memory? Mm. What are we if we don't have memory? And we know we, we breathe, but we're no longer human becomings, alas. And, you know, Richard, I, I, I'm embarrassed uh, in the most delightful way, because for many years, uh, for 49 years, you beat me a little bit. For 49 years, I've been a rabbi. Uh, right. And it took me until my, my 40th year to realize, oh, my God, Yiskor, the, the memorial service, it's a verb. Yeah. As opposed to the noun. Yisker service, uh, right? Uh, uh, yeah, the obvious. Yeah. So remembering is an act, you know. Uh, a, B. I think. Uh, <laughs> remember, we're old enough to remember a rock group that had a moment of success called Blood, Sweat, and Tears. It's interesting to me that there were a number of Jewish members of that group. And when I die and when I'm gone, there'll be one child born in the world yeah. to carry on, to carry on. I have the album. I have that album downstairs. I I, I love that because well, they did a they did a rendition of "God Bless the Child." Yeah, it actually the other than the classic uh, Billy Holiday stuff mm. was it's phenomenal. For those of you who may be a little younger than Michael, and I, "Blood, Sweat, and Tears" was a great, great group. Se- early seventies, late sixties, parallel to the rise of another group called Chicago. Mm-hmm. Some of you may remember this was a record. It was a big piece of vinyl with a little hole in the middle, and it's coming back. It's it's coming back. But Blood, Sweat, and Tears, um, the guy who was the lead singer, I don't remember his name, but that's a great song. It's a great yeah. album. It's a great album. Well, I think it's a, a window into a Jewish notion of immortality uh, or continuity, which might be a better refrain than than immortality, because from a Jewish perspective, uh, well, now this is Heschel. Most people, I'm paraphrasing, most people think religion is all about getting to God's world when we die, which is why for some people it's the only important thing, and for other people it's just a panoply of superstition and foolishness. Why take it seriously? Because we can't know what happens when we die. That is the definitive mystery of life. Uh, But Heschel points out, Judaism isn't about getting into God's world when you die. It's about getting God into the world, which was the discussion we just had a, a moment ago. What are you doing that gets God, or my phrase, Godness, into the world? Because I think, well, as soon as we think God, some of us have got to get a, a an old man with a white beard like you. And anyway, yeah. thank you. Exactly right. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, but what Judaism says, I think, ultimately happens when we die is we don't know. We trust God on it. There may be something when we die. There may be nothing. But look at your here now. Or an image I cite in the, the, the book is if you was, I learned this from Richard Rubenstein, who was infamous for being a quote unquote death of God guy. Right. But the image is exquisite. If you assume the only thing there is, is the ocean, by definition, there are waves on the ocean. There are part of, they, waves are part of the ocean before they are, while they are, and after what? After you no longer experience the wave. The ocean is the ground of being out of which all life emerges the sacred stuff that we call God. 
Right now, there's a wave on the ocean called Richard and Michael. And while we're in the form of waves, we have two jobs constantly messing up both of them. One, by definition, we're connected to all the other waves. And we're never not connected to the source. But these containers get in the way of our recognition of that. And at some point, we know my wave will not be apparent. What do we, we call that death? But what it is, is in my conviction, it's returning to the place we never left with or without consciousness. Because I, I have doubts that there's something so important about Michael Zedek that I should go on littering the universe forever. But that there's something important about my being now, that's our job, report for duty. So before we run out of time, I just have to ask you this one final question. It's real easy. And again, the book is Taking Miracles Seriously by Rabbi Michael Zedek, A Journey to Everyday Spirituality, available at the usual suspects, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, etc., etc. You speak so eloquently in the book about miracles and the miraculous and the soul. Um, Michael, what have you created your own spiritual practice? Well, the first response when I hear that is, I, I'm not a, dev a devote follower of Michaelism. I am a devote seeker of Judaism, both in that trying to be part of bridging the gulf between the world as it is and the world as it should be, and in terms of how it embraces me with both uh, the opportunity to ask questions for which I'm not certain about the responses and the capacity to continue on the journey until my journey's done. So I love to think that this is not Michaelism. This is a way of being part of the Jewish continuity, the Jewish story. Um, is it the only way? For sure not. Uh, is it my way? I guess, yes. And I want to stay on that highway. Thank you very much, Michael. I, I really appreciate you. the time and, and uh, good luck with the book. If you have a moment, I, I, can I just interject one little thing? The book came out September 26, and there's the day after Yom Kippur. So I, I happen to be in Chicago leading services at the congregation. I'm also emeritus from there. Um, and uh, I couldn't get back to my class on Tuesday morning on time, so I had to do it remotely. I get a text, uh, congratulations on the book. Looks like it's going to be a really good seller. First, thank you, but how do you know? And he showed me how on Amazon you can see where you're ranked. And at the time, it was number one in the category of Jewish wisdom, Jewish spirituality, whatever it was. So I'm really excited, especially because now I'll, I'll, I'll give away certain Yitzhar Harak. Number two was, a, was by a colleague whom I helped mentor when he was in Chicago. And thank God my book was ahead of his. However, I get home and I'm so excited. Honey, we got a bestseller on Amazon. And by the time I showed her how we had dropped to number three. <laughs> You know, that's that's the price of fame. You had your uh, 15 <laughs> minutes. Congratulations. Congratulations. Anyway, just stay safe and stay well. And and thank you very much. You'll be right. good. Just give, give a hug to Gary for me in addition to yours. Will you? I will. I will. Um, I will. To all of you, thank you very much for joining us on today's edition of Secrets of Meeting, the podcast and TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. Uh, if you would like to become a sponsor of one of our podcasts or a series of our podcasts, again, just email me, rabbi address at jewishsacredaging.com. If you'd like to make a tax-free donation to continue our podcasts and work, go to the website, jewishsacredaging.com. You'll find a conveniently located 
button called Donate. Just click on that, follow the directions. It's real, real easy. Thank you very, very much for your time. We really do appreciate it. We look forward to greeting you on our next edition. But before we go, a big thank you to Steve Lubetkin, our producer, because these podcasts are recorded at the Broadcast Center of Lubetkin Media Company in beautiful Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thank you very much, Steve. Again, thank you for your time. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address. And until we meet again on our next edition of Seekers of Meaning, Shalom, take care, stay safe, but most of all, be kind to one another. Shalom Tadah.